If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. And welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. Today you'll hear another lecture from our 2019 History Weekend in Chester. The speaker is Bart Van Ness, author of The Cutout Girl, which won the Costa Book of the Year Award. In this talk, Bart tells the extraordinary story of the Jewish children who lived in hiding in the Netherlands during the Second World War. Thank you. So I'd like to begin by introducing you to somebody. This is a photograph that I took on the 21st of December 2014 when I pressed a buzzer on an apartment block in Amsterdam went up to the third floor, steps out the lift, and there was this lady standing there who began to circle me slowly, an 82-year-old lady. And after about five minutes of looking at me, she said, you look more like your mother. And she invited me into this apartment that was full of modern art. It had cultural supplements under the coffee tables, um, season ticket to the opera, Um, really somebody who looked anything but the stereotypical Holocaust victim. And she kind of immediately felt to me like family. But I also knew that while this person had been part of my family a long time, she was on my parents' wedding photographs, she'd grown up with my father as a sister. I also knew that she wasn't really part of my family anymore. I had no memory of ever having met her. I'd always known that my grandparents had been part of the resistance in World War II during the Netherlands. I'm originally Dutch. Um, I knew that they'd hidden a number of Jewish children and that one of them had been a girl called Lien, who continued to live with them after the war as well. But that was really as far as it went. If you ever asked them about it, they would shut down the conversation. They would say, we weren't brave. What would you do? if somebody is left at your doorstep, um, we had no choice, and they wouldn't follow any further questions on the matter. It was also actually a matter of anxiety within my family. If you ever mentioned it, it was something that caused a lot of tension, the story of Lean, because I was vaguely aware there'd been some kind of row with this girl in the 1980s. I remember my mother crying. So there was a kind of secret here that couldn't be discussed. And I kind of left it at that until in 2014, in November, my eldest uncle, Case, died. And I think that with his death, I realized that a generation and its memories was passing away and that if I didn't do something to recover this story now, it really would be lost forever. So there was that sense of of, of the loss of a past combined with a realization that what had seemed very safely historical was suddenly much more relevant again. 
there were again people talking about maybe democracy not being such a great thing, conspiracy theories about the kind of Jews and Rothschilds running the world economy, anti-Semitic attacks. Um, you know, Islamic State was at its height at that moment. Sense that the world had lost some of those kind of certainties of the post-1945 settlement. So the history felt relevant and it was dropping away. And it was that that made me ask my mother, this, this girl, Lean, who used to uh, be part of the family, where is she now? Is she still alive? And my mother was, was very reluctant. She sort of said, it's not a happy story. You shouldn't investigate it. Um, but of course, I'm a nosy person. And I then wanted all the more to investigate it. And eventually, I got an email address, which my mother had actually kept. Uh, she, she had some uh, contact with her, although the rest of the family did not. And that meant that I got a reply, and this woman said she'd see me for half an hour for a cup of coffee, but it wouldn't really go any further than that. One of the first things she said to me was, without families, you don't have stories. She felt she didn't have a story. And she said, I don't have a connection with the Van Ness family anymore. But she invited me into her apartment, and after about half an hour of discussion, where she asked me about what I did as an academic researching Renaissance literature, what my family was like, what my political views were like, she suddenly said after half an hour, yes, I've got confidence in this. Shall we sit at the table, which is where she's sitting there? Have you brought pen and paper, which I hadn't? Um, I'd not been kind of prepared and hadn't wanted to arrive like a journalist. So there I sat with her at that table that you see uh, in the photograph. And without really any planning, I just started asking her about what her life was in the 1930s, what she remembered of her room, what kind of food she ate, what clothes she wore, what her journey to school was. And I think it came to her as a surprise, this history that she really hadn't visited personally for 70 years, how much came back as I started asking those questions. And very quickly, she started remembering that she had various documents. And within an hour or so of my being in that apartment, she showed me the letter that she was unfolding in that photograph. And this, I think for me, is still really the, one of the most harrowing and moving documents I've ever held in my hand. This is a letter that Lean's mother wrote in August 1942, in which she gives up her only daughter, uh, who will be collected at her door by the resistance in the hope that she might survive the war when the family realize they cannot. And it's this beautifully dignified uh, bit of writing. It's, she says, most honored sir and madam, although you are unknown to me, I imagine you for myself as the man and woman who will care for my only child. She has been taken from me by circumstance. May you, with the best will and wisdom, look after her. I want to tell you that it is my wish that she will think only of you as her father and mother, and that in the moments of sadness that will come to her, you will comfort her as such. It's just such an astonishing letter that somebody could have written in living memory. This was a letter that was folded into the little girl's coat and was delivered to my grandparents in August 1942, when Lean, who'd been you know, a totally assimilated Jew, who'd barely thought of herself really as Jewish, uh, the family had been part of Dutch society for, for centuries, um, and had been part of 
really the, the most assimilated of Jewish communities anywhere globally. Uh, the Netherlands had a history of acceptance of uh, Jewish citizens going right back to the 16th century. The Dutch Republic had welcomed Jews and had given them full rights of citizenship. And there was really no history, recorded history, of any anti-Semitic events at all over 400 years of Dutch citizenship uh, of Jews. There are huge synagogues in the center of Amsterdam built like cathedrals. So the Netherlands seemed a natural place of refuge also for many uh, Jews escaping Germany. 35,000 Jews uh, in the 1930s moved to the Netherlands, which seemed a safe haven from Germany. And yet in August 1942, a woman in the Netherlands could be writing such a letter. And there were in fact about 4,000 Jewish families who sent such letters in that period. 4,000 Jewish children survived the war in hiding with families other than their own. And the reason they had to do that was because the net was closing around the Jewish population of the Netherlands in a way that I think very few people could have uh, imagined possible in 1940. When I started researching this history, it was very early on that I was really stunned by a statistic that I, as somebody growing up in the Netherlands, had not been aware of, which is that 75 to 80% of Dutch Jews died in the Holocaust. 107,000 people sent to Auschwitz and Sobibor, which is a higher percentage, in fact, double the percentage of death than anywhere else in Western Europe. How could that have happened in this country with a history of toleration? Because when I started looking into it, it was clear that the people knocking on doors, the people administering this kind of system uh, were not Germans for the most part. They were Dutch civil servants and Dutch policemen. Dutch policemen who were paid individually for every Dutch Jew delivered to the transit camp of Vesterbork were paid seven guilders and 50 cents bounty for handing in their fellow citizens. So that sense of the context which could have produced such a harrowing letter and the ways in which um, the Dutch population of Jews who had felt so assimilated were very rapidly isolated from uh, their fellow citizens. Firstly, by very, very small changes, because um, when the Netherlands was invaded in May 1940, there were only four days of combat. Uh, and after that, the situation remained on the surface really entirely as it had been before. There were a few German soldiers, but it was still the Dutch government uh, that was in place largely, not the top ministers, but uh, the civil service remained, the school teachers remained the same, the policemen remained the same. And then very gradually, uh, small measures were introduced to isolate the uh, Dutch Jewish population. Very small things initially. Uh, Jew Jewish ownership of a radio became an offense. Uh, Jews were not allowed bicycles. Jews were not allowed on the tram. Jewish doctors couldn't treat Aryan patients. Uh, Jews were not allowed in air raid shelters. And then in 1941, Jews had to wear the yellow star 
uh, and they were, they were pulled apart from their fellow citizens. So that was the context that uh, eventually meant that in July 1942, uh, really the vast majority of uh, Jewish citizens received summonses to railway stations to uh, be transferred to the transit camp of Vesterborg. And Lean's parents were, were aware of the threats. There were many people uh, even then talking about gas chambers. Gas chambers actually appear in Anne Frank's diary. Uh, so people knew something of, of what, was, what was about to happen. And it was that that drove her parents to make that astonishingly brave choice to send that letter. But I also knew that this wouldn't be such a simple story as me just investigating um, the resistance activity of my grandparents, because there was that break with my family who had taken her in in 1942. And there was a second letter. There's this letter that Lean's uh, mother sent my grandmother. But there was a second letter which I knew existed that Lean actually that first day was still unwilling to show me, but she showed me a month and a half later, uh, which is this one. This is a letter written in 1988 to Lean by my grandmother, who had really become her mother uh, by that point, in which she says that she doesn't want to hear from Lean anymore, that she's not to ring her, uh, that she's not to call. And it was the last communication between them. Um, and it also meant thereafter, my grandmother told my aunts and uncles that they were not to contact Lean, that Lean was beyond the pale. And so she was cut out of the family. So I knew this book would have to, or if I was to write a book on this, it would have to provide a, an explanation of that first letter, but also somehow how things could have gone wrong and how the good people that my grandparents were could have ended up breaking with Lean and that this could have ended up in that second letter, uh, which was the reason that I'd never met Lean, um, had no idea who she was. So as I sat with Lean, that first day, this meeting that had been scheduled for half an hour actually became 10 hours. <laughs> because um, I was presented with an utterly kind of compelling narrative of a young girl's kind of unconscious absorption into the great machine that was World War II and the Holocaust. Because I sort of started out knowing nothing really very little about the subject matter of uh, the Netherlands under occupation and also absolutely nothing about Lean. I ended up receiving her story piecemeal in um, a kind of chronological way that was always without that kind of sense of what the end point would be. And because I was sort of asking her not these kind of big line questions, but instead things about what, what her life was like in school, I got this very intense absorption into ordinary life rather than the life of big history. And it was as part of that uh, that I got to see things like this photograph, which is a photograph of Lean's family on the beach in Scheveninger, uh, which is right next to The Hague, which is her hometown. This is a family photograph taken in uh, the early 1930s with uh, all of her extended family on it. Uh, and you can see uh, Lean's parents there immediately to the left of the woman holding the volleyball. Uh, so they're, they're just, well, this clicker doesn't really show anything, but uh, they're, they're immediately to the left, the, the embracing couple there. 
Uh, and Lean showed me this one kind of dog-eared group family photograph that she still had. Um, and I was immediately confronted with the very personal uh, version of that larger history of the extermination of the Dutch Jews, because apart from the woman holding the volleyball, Aunt Rosa, everybody in this photograph died in the Holocaust, almost all in Auschwitz and Sobibor. And Aunt Rosa only survived because she was experimented on by Joseph Mengler uh, for uh, two and a half years uh, of medical experimentation, um, of which he actually left uh, an account, which I've also read. So you see something like this, which, which at the moment of it ex being experienced would have been just a happy family day together without any sense of uh, what the grand narrative that was about to kind of sweep them out of the way would mean. And, and that makes it, I think, still more affecting to you that, that, that you don't think of these people as statistics. You see them instead as interacting personally with Lean. And so it was partly photographs that localized this story for me, but also um, various documents. And, and amongst those was, was something that, again, Lean had really almost entirely forgotten she owned. As we were talking about what her school life was like, uh, and you know the journey she had to school, which was, was a mixed school, of course, uh, with, with lots of non-Jewish children. She said, oh, and I had a pussy album. Almost all Dutch girls had pussy albums. And it's a sort of portmanteau word tying together kind of kitten and poetry. Uh, and they're, they're sort of these little girlish albums in which you ask somebody to write a poem on one side of the page. And facing it, they put these little cutouts um, usually of kind of boys in top hats, girls in crinolines, flower arrangements, angels, like that. Uh, and Lean had forgotten that she had this, and then she said, well, I think I might have it somewhere. So we actually started a search of her apartment and took books down from her bookshelf and eventually found it in a little plastic bag on the top shelf of her bookshelf. And the first poem in the poem book is from her father, written in 1940, in which he starts, uh, this is a book where friends can write who wish for you a future bright and always smiles throughout the, tear, uh, throughout the years um, with lots of laughs and never tears. And you have that sort of terrible sense of the, the irony of such a statement. These, these, these are people writing to a little girl who they love very much um, and without any sense of the, the impending disaster that we as readers, of course, know is coming to her. And many of those people in that photograph write poems in the poem book, including uh, Lean's favorite cousins, Rini and Daphia. So this poem book, I think, again, allowed me to kind of localize this story, which we're kind of in certain ways familiar with in, in, its, uh, in its overarching facts and, and its stories of survival. But this, this was a way into it that instead you saw these kind of moments that she was sitting with someone on a sofa or, or her classmate who writes a poem uh, and blots the page. And what upsets Lean is that he's spoiled a page of the album and you can still see the kind of cut out page uh, that's been removed uh, because it's blotted. And these poems at the beginning are, are very richly decorated with these beautiful uh, uh, kind of slightly quaint cutouts. 
And then the cutouts start disappearing and the names become exclusively Jewish because Lean now has to go to a Jewish school and she's wearing her star. And you can see the way in which uh, slowly more and more privations are circling in on her. And then the poems in the book change to those of my family. So this is the page done by my uncle Case, who died in November 2014. And it's written to his cousin, Lintje. He describes her as his cousin. Uh, and it's, you know, it's a lovely, very personal uh, tribute to her. He spent a lot of time arranging it. And it, it, it again puts us in this new world that Lean had been part of. Because what happened in August 1942 uh, is she was picked up by a woman called Mrs. Hirama, who was part of a, a network of uh, essentially kind of socialist-inspired. Uh, she, um, she was collected in The Hague, and then she was brought to my grandparents' house in Dordrecht. And in Dordrecht, she joined a family that was very different. Uh, her home context had been, I think, a little bit kind of precious. She was given a lot of special treatment as, a, uh, as an only daughter, and she used to spend a huge amount of time uh, stringing out her meals, uh, things she didn't like eating, and she had these sort of stomach problems, and she worried about her parents' uh, marriage, which had been a bit rocky and had broken up for a while. So that was the world she'd grown up in. Then in, set, in August 1942, she moved to this new family, my grandparents' house, which was a large working-class family, uh, trade union activists, uh, where the, one of the first things my grandmother did is take the digestive medicine that Lean had and pour it down the sink saying, you don't need this, uh, which actually was a perfect cure for her stomach problems. Uh, she suddenly was told, you just have to eat your dinner uh, uh, with everybody else. Uh, and this rough and ready family became Lean's and you see it in those individual poems in the poem book. So there are those kind of moments which are really not about the war, but are about a personal connection that Lean has with others. Then there are also uh, trivial objects that end up being uh, very moving when you understand uh, the context in which they were written. There was still a set of four letters that Lean received from her family when she first moved to my grandparents' house in Dordrecht. Um, and like that letter, which um, was sent along with Lean when she arrived in Dordrecht, they, they're filled with this very beautiful dignity. And, and in particular, those letters are kind of marked by this desire to keep hidden what the big story really is. Um, so she was, the idea is that she's having a happy holiday because, of course, no child would leave their parents forever and be able to do that. So, so the story they told Lean when she was picked up at her door was that she would be going somewhere else for a little while uh, to have a nice time. And her mother sent her this book for her birthday on the 7th of September, 1942, uh, which has the title, About a Happy Holiday. And the letter she sends is about saying, you know, uh, um, I hope you're, um, you know, grateful for what the Van Ness family are doing for you. She doesn't know they're the Van Ness family, what your, what your new family are doing for you. And when she actually read those letters, though they try to give an impression that this is a nice trip away for her, that was the point at which Lean, as a little girl, a nine-year-old, realized that actually this wasn't 
uh, a happy holiday at all, um, that she really wouldn't be seeing her parents anymore. Um, so she was overwhelmed by emotion on her birthday, cried uncontrollably for a long time. And then eventually, or not really eventually, very soon after, in fact, in November, when she was told she wouldn't be able to write to her father for his birthday, she made that kind of childish decision that this was now the past. And she told me that she was given two rings uh, by her parents, uh, one a gold one and one a silver one, which she had on her finger. And when she was told she couldn't write to her father for his birthday because they didn't have an address for him anymore, Lean said that she took off those two rings and started rolling them between her fingers in the corner of the kitchen of the Baness household until they slipped through the floorboards. And she said, I didn't think about my parents anymore after that. And in fact, she couldn't really visually reconstruct them anymore. So this, I think, gives an insight into the way in which children cope with trauma, which is, you know, initially perhaps to cry, but also to kind of shut parts of themselves off. Uh, and, and that was, in fact, the pattern of Lean's experience in uh, the war. And that's partly the meaning of the metaphor that runs throughout my book, which, which ends up taking those little cutout girls who are addressed by Lean's father at the beginning of the Pussy album uh, as a way of sort of imagining how Lean's life is. Because what happened to Lean is she was sort of cut out of uh, you know, an extended warm family in uh, The Hague in 1942 and pasted into a new one, uh, the Van Es family in Dordrecht, where the rules were completely different. Uh, the ways of behaving with each other was different. And when Lean told me that without families, you don't have stories, I, I, I got to understand that as I followed her story, which is, I think, meaning that things don't really happen if you don't share things with others to keep them alive. If you don't have things you cry over or laugh about or anecdotes you retell, uh, those experiences don't really happen for you. And so the book ended up partly also being about memory and how memory functions in history. So early on, Lean remembers things incredibly vividly. She remembers being picked up at her door. She remembers going on a train ride and that the lady who collected her uh, would tell her jokes to keep her happy on the journey. But as time goes on, she remembers less and less. So Lean, in fact, traveled across nine locations in the course of the war. So she started out in The Hague. Uh, she then moved to uh, the, the town of Dordrecht, my grandparents' hometown, in 1942. Uh, she hid there out in the open under a new identity. My, mother's my grandmother's maiden name was de Jong, which was also Lean's family name. So it was easy to give her this new identity. Um, but in March 1943, there was a police raid on the family home in Dordrecht. Two policemen knocked on the door. Lean actually opened the door, uh, but they stormed into the house uh, without noticing her. And my grandmother knelt down beside her, gave her a new address to go to, and she was gone. She left that family behind. And now she was passed into a resistance network uh, 
which meant that it was less and less clear what the rules were around her, uh, what was expected of her as a child. For a while, she was passed between resistance families in Dordrecht, but Dordrecht was particularly threatened by three very efficient policemen whose um, prosecution notes I ended up studying in a lot of detail in the Dutch National Archives of a group uh, headed up by a man called Harry Avers, uh, a Dutch policeman uh, who headed up what's called the political police in Dordrecht, um, who was personally responsible for the hunting down of uh, around 300 Jews in Dordrecht, pretty much the entire Jewish population of Dordrecht, uh, was discovered by this man, Harry Avers, who was uh, you know, an, an utter monster, a man who, who took genuine pleasure in the power that he got over uh, people. He used to play piano at the end of a raid if he'd successfully trapped uh, some uh, people in hiding. Uh, he routinely raped Jewish girls uh, when uh, he had them in his office before sending them off to Vesterbork. And I studied his documents uh, in order to get to understand what was going on in Dordrecht. And, and what was very shocking in looking at his story, first of all, was that monstrosity, um, but also uh, the way in which Harry Avers was able to kind of manipulate his own past. Harry Avers had been the leading figure of this set of policemen in Dordrecht. Um, but the mood of the Dutch population, which had been quite largely collaborative for the first two years of the war, I think most Dutch people certainly were not happy to be invaded. Very, very few of them were fascists. But uh, for the most part, people did not really engage in any resistance activity. Um, and they regretted the fact that their fellow citizens were being carted off uh, to Poland but only a very small number of them actually did anything to help. And the economy boomed under German occupation. Uh, growth rates were very high and very shocking things happened like uh, that the big Dutch construction firms actually actively competed to build the Atlantic Wall uh, to prevent the invasion of the country. Uh, so this sense of kind of a, a population that very quickly kind of accepted the new reality it was very striking. And Harry Avers was, a, was an extreme version of that, clearly. Uh, but there was a, he, he, he functioned in a context where the entire system was really accommodating the new reality. We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it. So your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com slash history extra. 
This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. In January 1943, the Germans who'd been actually disappointed in the fact that relatively few Dutch citizens had actually volunteered to join the German war effort. 20,000 Dutch men joined the SS. Another 20,000 joined the Wehrmacht. Uh, But for the rest, the population had not really embraced uh, the occupation to the extent that Germany had initially hoped. So in January 1943, the Germans introduced forced labor for uh, Dutch men. Um, So that all men between the ages of 18 and 35 had to report to go and work in factories and other industries in Germany, unless they were in essential professions. And what this did was it created a national resistance movement because 300,000 Dutch men went into hiding to avoid the fate of being sent into labor camps, which created really a resistance army in the Netherlands. Uh, So... uh, Physical attacks on German soldiers, which were basically non-existent at the beginning of 1943, ramped up markedly over the course of that year. Clearly, the fortunes of war were also changing. It's clear that the German advance into Russia had stopped. So the mood of the country changed very radically over the course of 1943. And by 44, the Dutch were suffering more than any other nation uh, under the occupation in Western Europe. the Dutch population uh, during the hunger winter uh, had a cut of more than half in its food intake. 25,000 Dutch people starved to death in the last phase of the war. So Harry Avers, the Dordrecht policeman, is an interesting, uh, horrifically interesting example of, uh, of, of what was actually quite a general uh, pattern amongst collaborators. Um, towards the middle of 1943, he made contact with the resistance and started doing work for them, mending weapons, uh, giving information, uh, helping with the assassination of uh, certain high-up figures uh, within uh, the the occupation government. So at the end of the war, he announced himself as a resistance hero who had only been part of uh, the political police as part of uh, an effort to undermine Uh, the occupation from the inside. And partly as a result of that move, in spite of being personally responsible for the death of around 300 people, he got a sentence of three years and six months uh, for his crimes. This was in fact the wider pattern amongst uh, those who collaborated. Even Albert Hemmerke, the uh, commandant of Westerbork, who'd held an enormous party to celebrate the transport of the 40,000th Jew to Auschwitz, served only five years in prison. So Lean moved from The Hague to Dordrecht, um, sorry, and then 
was passed into a, a network of resistance families within Dordrecht, but it was too difficult to survive uh, in Dordrecht because of Harry Avers and Arid and Brian, um, who were very efficient uh, Jew hunters, uh, also very much amassing that huge amount of money for capturing Jews. So this meant that she was then brought to uh, the town of Iselmonde, which is across the Maas River from uh, Rotterdam. And there she hid completely in a back room, never seeing uh, sunlight for another six or seven months uh, with, with a farming family there. So her life became much more that of the kind of classic hideaway. That farm too was discovered um, and Lean narrowly escaped a second time, this time carried by a boy who was in hiding with her, uh, who, who was actually one of those uh, escaping uh, the forced labor summons. Uh, they were carried to uh, a new resistance hideout. And from there, Lean was sent to uh, the village of Benekom, uh, right over towards the German border. Now, when Lean told me that, and what, what I decided to do after that first day with Lean in December 19, uh, December 2014, because I it was immediately struck this was kind of one of the most important stories I'd ever encountered, I thought what I would do is I would come for a month to the Netherlands and interview her in great detail. But what I would also do is go to these various locations where she had been hidden and interview people there, take photographs in the hope that this might spark further memories from her. So that's what I did in January 2015, which added another kind of layer to my experience. So partly the experience was one of this total immersion in Lean's personal childhood story. Secondly, it was a, an immersion into this big national narrative of uh, collaboration and then uh, also resistance. But it thirdly became then also my journey as I started uncovering the story and seeing the Netherlands as it was now in a new way, this country that kind of looked in a way devoid of history. It's, it's just so clean and efficient and uh, modern that it seems very surprising that there should be uh, this buried history there, which is buried physically, but also sort of psychologically, I think, in the Dutch population. And that became to me particularly striking when Lean told me that she'd hidden in this village of Benekom. Because Benekom is my mother's home village. So she'd started out in the, the fairly big town of Dordrecht with my father's family. But at the end of the war, she was in this very small village of about 5,000 people. Uh, which is the one village in the Netherlands that I know very well. I'd spent every summer there of my childhood, uh, though we, my parents often lived abroad. We would, my brother and I would always come back to stay with our grandmother for the summer. So Benekom was this place that I knew very well. And I was amazed when Lean said that the last part of the war she'd been hiding in Benekom. And so I said, right, well, I'll, I'll go and knock on that door then. And it was a five minute walk from my grandparents' house in uh, the little village of Benekom and I knocked on this door and I'd become uh, used to this process of knocking on doors and asking people uh, if I could look around and take photographs. And I knocked on the door of this house in Benekom and I told the woman, you know, I'm here looking into uh, the life of uh, my aunt, as I was calling her by then, uh, who 
lived in this house during World War II as a Jewish girl in hiding. And the lady said, oh, do you mean at the time of Mrs. Van La? And I said, yes, do you have a personal connection? And she said, well, no, not really, but uh, we found a diary belonging to her when we expanded the cellar a uh, few months ago. And this was really sort of moment where, you know, the ground was opening up beneath my feet, really. And, uh, you know, a few minutes later, I was sitting in the front room, leafing through what was really more of a kind of account book than a diary, uh, but which described all the laundry and all the meals uh, during the time of lean in that household. And then she said, oh, well, you ought to go and speak to my neighbor. He knows lots about the war, uh, even though he was born after it. And I didn't particularly want to go and speak to this neighbor. I felt I could find out about the war myself. Uh, and also they had particularly scary dogs. Uh, <laughs> it was a kind of metal gate with some Alsatians barking and a very unfriendly sign saying cold callers were not welcome. Uh, so, but she was standing in her doorway and she said, no, go on, go, go, and, go and ask him. So I didn't have any choice. I knocked on this door. And this figure came sort of striding through his garden with a pack of vicious Alsatians around him. <laughs> and I said, you know, I'm very, very sorry to bother you, uh, but I'm looking into the life of this Jewish girl in hiding. And he said, Lintje, she's the reason that I was born. And this was just completely revelatory to me. Lean had no memory of this second house in, Isol in, in Benacom at all. He said, um, you must come in. Uh, I'll tie up the dogs, which, <laughs> which is very reassuring. So he invited me into this house and they had photographs of Lean. He said, Lean in hid in this house. Um, and we had a family hiding that Lean didn't know about underneath the floorboards in a room that had electric light. Uh, and this was just absolutely astonishing to me. And she said, my sister remembers Lean really well. Um, he was born after the war. In fact, as a kind of attempt by his mother to recover the daughter they felt they'd lost uh, with the hideaways. Um, so I ended up interviewing this old lady uh, in her early 90s in an old people's home who still remembered sharing a bedroom with Lean. Now, this was sort of amazing in, in various ways because, um, firstly, Lean remembered nothing of this at all. She had no memory of being in this bedroom with this girl. She had no memory of spending weeks in this house. And that really revealed again to me much more intensely the way in which memory starts to fall away as you lose connection with people around you. By this point, Lean was onto her eighth household. And that thing of, of things not really being bedded down if you don't have a personal connection um, was what was happening to her psychologically. She says she's kind of halfway during the war, she, she only remembers things in black and white. And then there are these just enormous gaps. So I was kind of confronted by those gaps in a new way when I had this whole story with photographs and letters in uh, this household that Lean didn't remember. Um, so they told me about the escape from that village to the town of Ada after the uh, bridge too far landings happened right above the village. But of that, Lean only remembered seeing the parachutes. So it was a way in which Lean's personal memory uh, was affected by a lack of connection with those around her. But this was also truth about a wider Dutch memory. Um, because once I started investigating what went on in the village of Benicom, 
I found out that there were actually 150 Jews hidden in the village of Benekom, all really organized through a couple called Pete and Annas Hull, uh, who distributed uh, a large number of Jews across the village uh, in, in hiding places. But my mother's grandparents had no awareness of this at all. My aunts and uncles couldn't believe this was actually true when I told them it had happened, even though they had lived their entire lives in this village. So there was a kind of amnesia at Lean's personal level, but also a kind of national amnesia. There's no memorial to these people. There's no way in which this history has been recorded. And that, I think, is the product of that very strange double phase of English, of Dutch history, this first bit of uh, the war where actually the resistance was only a very small part of the population and a second phase where it became a kind of national effort. But that means that the, the war is not this kind of unifying narrative that it can be for Britain. Uh, and really the Dutch effort after the war in 1945 was to rebuild the country, to make it modern, uh, to take away any remnant of wartime experiences uh, in order to forge this new um, progressive nation uh, that was partly built on kind of myths like the Anne Frank story, which is, of course, true, but presents too simple a picture of uh, what happened during the war. So the book I've written has tried to um, embody those various elements in it, which is partly this story of a little girl who ends up as this very wise uh, person in her 80s, somebody who is interested in the world, uh, but who ultimately didn't succeed with my grandparents to fully become part of a second family. Um, and again, the explanation of that takes up a lot of the last bit of the book, uh, but it's partly about that problem of how you integrate with a family whose background is so different from your own. There's that personal story. There's also the big historical story of the Netherlands, and then finally, there's my story of investigating it and what this does to me emotionally as I learn about my own family. And I felt I had to write the book ultimately in a way that would reflect the way that I experienced it. So it's a book made up of three voices, really. One is Lean's voice as a little girl. Um, and I didn't want to write a kind of pastiche of a little girl's writing, but the bits that deal with her life are kind of novelistic and use a slightly simplified vocabulary to reflect this quite limited vision that she as a little girl had on the world and then also later she as, as a grown-up woman uh, and the way that she changes. And sometimes that story had to be kind of reconstructed from other people's testimony. Secondly, there is this wider historical narrative which I kind of write in the third person. And then there is my story as not only I investigate Lean's story, but also I write it. And I wanted to be explicit sometimes in the book about the processes that I was having to use to make history come alive. So sometimes in the book you'll read descriptions that then are undermined by my saying, but Lean doesn't remember any of this. So that's the story of the cutout girl. And I think ultimately... One of the things I'm very happy with about it is, firstly, that Lean is very happy with it uh, and that it hasn't ended up being a narrative straightforwardly of victimhood, that it can end on 
the lean that I met in December 2014, who for all her suffering is somebody who's at peace with the world, who can say, she says, I am a happy woman. Um, and that the, the final line of the book is that she is connected and whole. Thank you. That was Bart Van Ness. His book, The Cutout Girl, is out now, published by Fig Tree. We're not currently holding live events, but we are running a series of fortnightly virtual lectures on various different historical topics. You can find out more about them on our website at historyextra.com forward slash events. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.